Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. This episode, I'm mostly sad because the weather in Chicago, since it's summer, is beyond horrifying. We're into that season of extremely high humidity where it's so humid that really the air is just water. Woohoo. I really asked for it by willingly moving to the Midwest. I really should have just stayed in Northern California where I had a life and non-extreme weather patterns and all of that. But hey, a history lover has to do what a history lover has to do. With this episode, I'm beginning a new series of study guides, this time exploring the lives of various women who were involved with the Harlem Renaissance. Like I mentioned in my last study guide, I've been doing this podcast for about a year, and I've really not covered anyone who wasn't white, which is problematic for a whole lot of reasons. While I have done my best to cover men and women fairly equally, I've had a huge blind spot when it comes to race in terms of this podcast, and I am going to take full ownership for that. And given the racism that the United States has faced in the past and is still grappling with, I do think that shows a real feeling on my end, and I am going to try to be better about that moving forward, hence this, the- hence this series on the women of the Harlem Renaissance. Going into it, I was a little bit uncomfortable when I am a white woman, so speaking about race, even if it is in history, is always going to be something that is a little uncomfortable for me. I am always going to be worried about putting my foot in my mouth or accidentally saying something that is a microaggression. If I do that, please do not hesitate to let me know. Obviously, I'm going to do my best to avoid saying anything that is racist, but given that I am a white person operating in a place of racial privilege and that we do live in a racist society that may inadvertently happen. I've done a ton of research, but I do want to let everyone know that I may make mistakes. The other reason why I was a little hesitant at first is the Harlem Renaissance is a time period I don't know as well as other periods I've covered in this podcast, but I've always loved the 1920s in terms of literature and culture. It is one of my favorite time periods, and the Harlem Renaissance, when we think about it, we tend to think of the male cultural figures, both literary and otherwise, and as someone who really pushes for women's inclusion in the larger historical narrative, I did think it was important to discuss some of the women who are part of the Harlem Renaissance, and as it turns out, there are tons of them, and they are all absolutely fascinating. I'm going to start out with the story of Jessie Fawcett, who was an editor who really helped bring the Harlem Renaissance to life 
due to the way she promoted a lot of major African-American authors whose names you probably learned in high school, even though you most likely never learned about Jessie Fawcett because, well, welcome to women in history. Her study guide has a possible affair, men ignoring women, and further proof that it's probably better to pursue a field in STEM than a field in the humanities. Yes, mother, maybe you were right after all. Let's begin. Jessie Fawcett was born April 27, 1882, in Snow Hill, Camden County, New Jersey. Her parents were Redmond Fawcett and Annie Fawcett. Her father, Redmond, was a minister in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, whose father had been living as freed people of color in the northern part of the United States for several generations before the Civil War, which meant that even though Jesse and her family were African Americans, they had not experienced slavery for many years, and that aspect of the African American experience was going to be fairly foreign to Jessie. When Jessie was fairly young, her mother, Annie, died, and her father moved the family, which included Jessie and her three siblings, to Philadelphia. Once he was in Philadelphia, he remarried to a white Jewish widow who had three children of her own. Then Redman and his new wife had three other children. The relatively large size of the Fawcett family meant that they were always going to be a little bit short on cash, despite the fact that Redmond Fawcett had a fairly respectable living in the church. Despite the relative lack of cash, the Fawcett family was always going to be extremely educationally focused, and both parents were really going to push all of the children to pursue the highest degree of education possible. Jessie, for example, was going to be sent to a local all-girls school in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia High School for Girls. This high school's goal was to educate young women to become teachers, and during her time at the school, Jessie was almost certainly the only non-white student. Despite the fact that she truly was a minority at her school, she seemed to have a decent time there and truly excelled academically. She did so well in high school that she was determined to go to nearby all-women's college of Bryn Mawr to further her education. And if she had been accepted to Bryn Mawr, she would have been the school's first non-white student. But that was a big if. As it turned out, Bryn Mawr had no interest in accepting a non-white student and neither did any of the local teaching colleges due to local racist attitudes within Philadelphia. And said local racist attitudes were going to continue for quite some time. While she did not get into Bryn Mawr, Jessie did end up receiving a full scholarship to go to the Ivy League University of Cornell up in Ithaca, New York. And she took that opportunity left Philadelphia, and moved to New York. At Cornell, she was probably the first 
non-white female student to attend the school, although it's hard to know for sure because Cornell's official documents at the time did not actually record the race of students. We do know, though, that Jesse was not allowed to live in the school's dorms over administrative fears that her presence would upset Southern families, and instead, she lived off campus with a professor and his family instead. At Cornell, Jesse studied classical languages and did extremely well academically. Once again, she was a member of Phi Beta Kappa and was one of the first, if not the very first, African-American woman in the United States to gain entry to Phi Beta Kappa. In 1904, during her junior year at Cornell, Jessie was looking for a summer job. She was really interested in pursuing teaching after graduation, and she decided she wanted to go to the South to teach African-American students, and she ended up getting a summer job teaching English at Fisk University in Tennessee. Through this job, she started a correspondence, one W. E.B. Du Bois. W.E.B. Du Bois would have a massive impact not just on Jesse's life, but on the lives of many African Americans, both in the early 1900s and deep into the 20th century. W.E.B. Du Bois was a major American civil rights leader, activist, educator, and writer. He studied at the All Black. Fisk University before going on to Harvard University, where he was the first African-American to get a doctorate from Harvard. He then taught sociology, economics, and history at UPenn and Atlanta University. During his time as a professor, Du Bois became nationally famous for his research about African-American life in the United States. The year after, Jesse began writing with Du Bois. He was one of the founders of the Niagara Movement, an African-American civil rights group that pushed for the unequivocal economic, social, and legal equality for African-Americans. One of the big focuses of the Niagara Movement was to end racial segregation and to ensure voting rights for African-American men and women. The way that the Niagara Movement pushed for immediate civil rights and an immediate end of segregation went against the traditional method of accommodation that had been pushed by Booker T. Washington since the end of the 19th century. In 1909, W. Du Bois was one of the founders of the NAACP, and starting the next year, he became its president. And as it turns out, Jesse and Du Bois had quite a few ideas in common. Jesse agreed with his philosophy around the need for racial pride to combat discrimination and the idea that certain artistic ideals could transcend racial boundaries. And the two were now pen pals. The next, the next year, in 1905, Jessie graduated from Cornell with a BA in classical languages. Because she was a woman in the early 1900s, her options were either to get married or to go into teaching, and Jessie had no interest in getting married just yet. She wanted to be a teacher. 
and her initial plan was to go back to her hometown of Philadelphia and teach there. But due to institutional racism in the city, she really struggled to find a job at any of the integrated schools, by which I mean she was denied a job anywhere she applied. Instead, she moved to Washington, D.C., once again, due to racism, Jessie could not get a job at any of the integrated schools, but Washington, D.C. had a strong middle and upper class African American community, and while there were segregated schools in the city, some of the segregated schools were considered to be extremely elite, and she got a job at one of these elite segregated schools. During her job, during her time teaching in Washington, D.C., she was mostly going to be teaching French and Latin to middle-class African-American students. While living in the D.C. area did offer Jesse more career opportunities than Philadelphia, it was also much more overtly racially segregated than her home city. As a result of the segregation, Jessie began to get much more involved in politics. It was while she was living in D.C. that she officially joined the NAACP. She also got introduced to a literary circle made up of female African-American writers and began writing. Starting in 1912, she began to submit original work to a monthly magazine called The Crisis. The Crisis was the NAACP the NAACP's official magazine, which Du Bois had started in 1910. The crisis's goal was to pursue, quote, the world-old dream of human brotherhood through bearing witness to, quote, the danger of race prejudice and reporting on, quote, the great problem of interracial relations. Some of Jesse's early pieces for the crisis included a series of columns discussing books that talked about education and racial issues, as well as a series of personal essays. Pretty soon, Jessie got a reputation within the African-American community, both in Washington, D.C. and across the United States, for being quite the talented author. In fact, she was so talented that in 1919, Du Bois made Fawcett the literary editor of The Crisis. In order to fulfill this position, she had to quit her job as a teacher and move to New York City, where the magazine was based. The same year that she took on the job of being the literary editor for The Crisis, she also somehow managed to find the time to get a master's degree in French from the University of Pennsylvania. So she's just killing it in the career game. As soon as Jessie joined the staff of The Crisis, the magazine was seeing really the height of its success. It sold over 100,000 copies of the June 1919 issue, and W.E.B. Du Bois was able to massively jack up the price of the magazine because it was so popular. For her work as literary editor, Jessie got paid $100 a month, which is about $1,500 a month in 2020 money, which shows that then, just like now, working in literature still doesn't exactly pay all that well. As the crisis's literary editor, 
Jesse would work closely with a bunch of soon-to-be major African-American writers and really helped promote them. She became especially close to some names you might remember from high school English class, including Langston Hughes, Jean Toomer, and Claude McKay. Due to her work helping such new authors get known, she would be seen, according to Langston Hughes, as one of the central creators of the, quote, new Negro literature. In addition to publishing their work, helping them get their names out in the press, and really ensuring that they became successful as young authors, Jesse also helped introduce these authors to African-American community leaders and apparently was fantastic at making them feel at ease when they entered into literary society. All around, she was someone you wanted to have on your side if you were a young African-American author who wanted to make your mark. Basically, Jessie was going to be central to the literary side of the Harlem Renaissance. So, what exactly is the Harlem Renaissance for those of us who haven't been in a U.S. history classroom for a while or who were forced to take an extremely whitewashed version of U.S. history? Well, like so many artistic movements, the Harlem Renaissance doesn't have a set starting date, but it really took off post-World War I in, surprise, surprise, Harlem, New York. Before we really dive in to what it was, there is a teeny bit of background we need to know. Actually, there's a lot of background we really could describe the background of the Harlem Renaissance by going way, way back to, like, pre-slave trade, but as always, we're going to stick pretty pretty surface level for the sake of this podcast. Basically, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, we have what's known as the Great Migration. Huge numbers of African Americans start moving from the South due to Jim Crow laws and how terrible sharecropping is and a little group known as the KKK up to the more industrial North where life still sucks and racism still exists, but where it's moderately less overt and the KKK isn't actively running around and a large chunk of that population moves to New York City specifically the Harlem neighborhood of New York City, which had technically started out as a white residential district, but by 1919 or so has the most concentrated African-American population in an American city, and according to some sources, has the largest African population of anywhere on the planet outside of the African continent. Because there's such a dense African population within Harlem, there's going to be a ton of artistic and cultural experimentation happening in the neighborhood. And a lot of this experimentation comes out of a desire to redefine African-American culture as not inherently inferior to white and European culture, which is how it had been traditionally defined in America because of, you know, American racism. And obviously, African-American culture is not inherently inferior. No culture is inferior to another culture. 
it's not like a contest or like a graded scale. Instead, it's just like a spectrum where all cultures exist. You wouldn't say that green is better than orange. They both just exist and they both are just there. That's the way culture is. But in this post-World War I moment, it becomes easier in some ways for African-American artists and cultural thinkers to begin making this claim around their own culture because European avant-garde artists have started to pull inspiration from traditional African art, which makes the whole claim of African culture as inferior even more hypocritical than it traditionally had been. And these ideas around redefining African-American culture are pushed even further by our favorite W.E.B. Du Bois and his ideas around cultural pluralism and the idea that culture, shockingly, doesn't have to be judged on a ranked scale. We also start having arguments that African-American art and literature might be the most genuinely American form of literature because Anglo-American literature is too tied to the European tradition, which is a really interesting argument, even though it does erase indigenous art and literature, but that's a subject for another podcast. All of this is to say there's going to be huge implications as African-American artists, musicians, and authors begin experimenting and creating their own distinct style. And Jesse Fawcett's going to be in the middle of all of this, really pushing and working with African-American authors specifically who are working in this new style. During her time in New York, during the Harlem Renaissance, Jessie is going to be living with one of her sisters, Helen, and several of her half-siblings are also going to be living in the Harlem area of New York City, and the family as a whole is going to be particularly close during this time. Jessie and her sister are going to get a reputation for turning their apartment into a bit of a salon, and it's going to become a cultural institution within Harlem. Beyond her work at the crisis, Jessie is very involved in the Harlem art scene. For example, she's a huge patron of the all-African-American musical Shuffle Along. She attends the premiere and volunteers to help out as an usher for the show so that they don't have to pay for ushers when they hit a bit of a financial stumbling block. In addition to working at the crisis, Jessie is also going to be working for other publications, specifically the monthly publication The Brownies Book, which runs from 1920 to 1921. The goal of The Brownies Book was to give African-American children information about their history and heritage, which really does fit in to some of the larger goals of the Harlem Renaissance. In addition to all of her editorial work, Jessie is still going to be writing regular articles for the crisis, and most of these articles are going to be nonfiction, personal essays. She also will be dealing with drama between Du Bois and other members of the NAACP that are going on behind the scenes of the magazine. 
because that's always a thing that happens at a magazine that is affiliated with a larger organization. And there's the fact that Du Bois really has a not-so-great habit of trying to take credit for the various authors who she has discovered who are now becoming famous. So she has to keep pausing from her work and being like, no, actually, I was the one who discovered insert famous author's name here. And as if all that weren't enough, she's also having to communicate the literary goals of not just the crisis, but the larger Harlem Renaissance to white authors who are interested and possibly supportive on the surface, but actually aren't all that sympathetic when push comes to shove. In 1924, Jessie Fawcett takes a small step back from her work at the crisis and writes her first novel, There Is Confusion. She was inspired to write a novel at last because she was really troubled by the inaccurate portrayals of African Americans, specifically African American women in novels that were published by white authors, and she wanted to prove that she could write realistic African-American characters. And she did it. There's just the issue that she had a lot of trouble finding a publisher for the novel because, one, she is a female author, two, she is an African-American author, and three, she was not writing about stereotypical African-American characters. It's almost like intersectionality is a thing. Kimberly Crenshaw is correct. However, she did eventually find a publisher, and there is confusion got published. And this is a huge deal. The African-American literary community is thrilled that their beloved editor is finally getting a novel out there. To celebrate the publication of There is Confusion, Charles Spurgeon Johnson, an African-American sociologist, cultural writer, and overall, like, cultural leader, decides to throw a dinner to honor Jessie and her achievement. However, at the last minute, the dinner's purpose changes to celebrate African-American achievement in literature more broadly, aka the focus shifted from just Jessie to look more at male writers. And even though Jessie's work was described that night in glowing terms, Jessie rightfully was annoyed that her night was kind of overshadowed by the works of men. And that sort of what has and that sort of is what has happened with Jessie Fawcett's life. She sort of dropped out of academic conversation for decades. It's only pretty recently that she's reemerged as one of the big authors of the Harlem Renaissance. And this trend isn't just in the case of Jessie Fawcett. It's a trend for a lot of women in the Harlem Renaissance, as well as history in general. However, she did not let this institutional misogyny get her down. The next year, she visited Algeria, which meant that she would be one of the few members of the Harlem Renaissance to actually visit the African continent, which is pretty cool if you ask me. 
On this trip, Jessie also visited Europe and spent a lot of time writing about the lives of poor women that she met in both continents. Because Jessie by now was interested in pursuing an independent literary career, she ended up stepping down from the crisis in 1626. By this time, the relationship between her and Du Bois was getting more and more strained. Some letters between the two of them suggested that they maybe had had a romantic relationship, and by 1926, the relationship turned sour, which is a good life lesson to us all. Do not hook up with your co-workers. And slightly more importantly, Jessie was really disagreeing on the direction that the crisis was starting to take. Du Bois wanted it to focus more on business and finance, and Jessie felt like this new direction made the literary side of the magazine and her position in it less important. After stepping down from the crisis, Jessie attempted to get work in publishing. She tried to get a job at one of the major publishing houses as a proofreader, but due to the one-two punch of sexism and racism, she could not find a job. Because she didn't have any patrons, unlike a lot of other authors during the Harlem Renaissance, she had no choice but to return to teaching. She taught French at the DeWitt Clinton High School through the 1930s, but continued writing on the side. She ended up writing three other novels, Plumbum, The Chinaberry Tree, and Comedy American Style, but once again, she really struggled getting those three novels published. She also went on several lecture tours where she discussed her time at the crisis and her ideas on African-American literature. In 1929, Jessie married a local African-American insurance broker named Herbert Harris, who had fought for the United States in World War I. Even after she married Herbert, Jessie continued to live with her sister, Helen. Herbert and Jessie only left New York after Helen died in 1938. The two then moved to New Jersey, which is where Herbert was originally from. In New Jersey, Jessie... Jessie continued her writing and kept a fairly low profile, except for when she briefly was invited to teach at the Hampton Institute in Virginia. In 1958, Herbert died. Jessie herself ended up dying of heart disease on April 30th, 1961, in her childhood city of Philadelphia at the age of 79. Most of Jessie Fawcett's writing focused on the on middle-class African-American women and specifically focused on pushing against the stereotypes of African-American women that existed in American literature. As a result of this, her work was initially extremely well-reviewed by African-American publications. However, as time went on, she was criticized for having books that were too sentimental and not modern enough, especially because her books tended to center on the use of the traditional marriage plot. By the late 1930s, her books mostly dropped out of the larger cultural conversation and didn't really re-enter academia until the 1990s. So let's talk about the four books that Jessie Fawcett wrote. First, we have there is Confusion, her debut novel, 
which tells the intertwined stories of three African-American children, Joanna, a talented dancer, Maggie, a beautiful young woman who wants to leave the working-class neighborhood where all three of them live, no matter what she has to do, and Peter, who dreams of being a surgeon. When There's Confusion was first published in 1924, it really made waves in the literary world because, one, it pushed against stereotypical ideas of African Americans that existed in books, and two, it discussed the idea of African Americans who were actively seeking education and social advancement, which was a totally new thing. As a result, like I mentioned, it was really popular among the Harlem Renaissance crowd and got fairly good reviews among African American publications, although white audiences didn't quite know what to make of it. Then we have Plumbum, which is probably her most famous novel. Plumbum tells the story of a young, mixed-race, middle-class woman in Philadelphia who is fed up by the restraints of African-American bourgeoisie, respectability, and who moves to New York City where she can pass for white. She then gets into a love triangle between a poor mixed-race artist and a wealthy white man. Ultimately, she has to decide whether or not to reveal her true identity in order to help another female Black artist and to deal with the mistreatment that she's facing from the wealthy white man. Plumbum was famous at the time for its discussion of the phenomenon of African Americans passing for white, as well as its criticisms of African American respectability politics. Then we have her novel, The China Berry Tree, which looks at a wealthy African American community in the DC area. The novel focuses on a young mixed-race woman, Laurentine, whose mother had an affair with a white man. As a result, she is fairly isolated from the larger African-American community, and the novel explores her complicated relationship with the other women in her family, as well as her attempts to marry a man who will improve her social reputation. Jessie's final novel, Comedy American Style, looks at a family who is torn apart over their African-American identity. The novel focuses on the tensions between the mother, who is white-passing, and the rest of the family. Both the Chinaberry Tree and Comedy American Style did not get the glowing reviews that There is Confusion and Plumbum received. She really struggled to publish both of them, and compared to the first two novels, they really aren't read or discussed that much, either within her lifetime or nowadays. So, for those fans of the podcast who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's do a quick recap of the pretty incredible life of a pretty incredible woman. Jessie Fawcett was born in 1882 in New Jersey. Her father was a minister in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. However, due to the large size of the family, the Fawcett's never had quite enough money growing up. Despite this, her father really pushed the Fawcett children to get the best education possible, which meant that Jessie was sent to a local all-girls school whose goal it was to educate women to become teachers. Jessie was most likely the only non-white student at the school while she was a student there, and 
While she struggled socially, she excelled academically. She got a full scholarship to Cornell University, where she studied classical languages and was one of the first African-American women in the country to be a member of Phi Beta Kappa. During her time at Cornell, Jessie spent a summer teaching English at the all-black Fisk University in Tennessee. During her time teaching at Fisk University, she started a correspondence with one W.E.B. Du Bois, who just so happened to be a major American civil rights leader and activist and one of the founders of the NAACP. After graduating from Cornell in 1905 with her B.A. in classical languages, Jessie returned to Philadelphia to become a teacher. However, due to institutional racism within the city, she could not get a job, so she moved to Washington, D.C. and started teaching French and Latin to middle-class African-American students in the D.C. area. During her time in D.C., due to the city's more explicit segregation, Jessie started to get involved in politics and joined the NAACP. She also got introduced to a female African-American literary circle and started writing. In 1912, she started submitting original work to the NAACP's monthly magazine, The Crisis. By 1919, she had made enough of a splash at The Crisis that Du Bois made her the magazine's literary editor. So Jessie packed up her bags and moved to New York City, where she was given the very generous salary of $100 a month, aka $1,500 a month in 2020 money. As the crisis's literary editor, Jessie Fawcett discovered major African-American authors, including Langston Hughes and Claude McKay. Through her work, she was one of the central figures of the literary side of the Harlem Renaissance. In addition to working as a literary editor for the for the crisis, she continued writing articles, worked for another monthly publication who helped educate African-American children, was a patron of the Harlem art scene, and started writing novels. She published her first novel, There Is Confusion, in 1924, and this novel stood out because it was one of the first novels in American history by an African-American that pushed against traditional stereotypes of African-American characters present in American literature. Two years after publishing There is Confusion in 1926, Jessie left her position on the crisis partially to pursue an independent literary career and partially due to a growingly strained relationship between her and Du Bois. After leaving the crisis, Jessie returned to teaching, but also wrote three other novels. In 1929, Jessie married a local African-American insurance broker, Herbert Harris. The two were married for almost 30 years before Harris died. Jessie Fawcett ended up dying in April 1961 of heart disease at the age of 79. Like I said, Jessie Fawcett really isn't mentioned that much, if at all, in your average history class. While you do usually get your page, maybe two pages, on the Harlem Renaissance in your average A-Push textbook, I'm not really sure about normal American history textbooks because I've only really taught A-Push, the figures of the Harlem Renaissance who pop up tend to be all men, 
but most of those male writers who show up in the Harlem Renaissance section, they wouldn't have gotten anywhere if it wasn't for Jesse Fawcett, which is why I think it was appropriate to start this little series off with her. Because, like I said, she is super cool and so central for creating what we think of when we think about the Harlem Renaissance. Before we wrap up this episode, I do want to read a poem written by Jessie Fawcett because in addition to writing essays and novels, she also was a poet. This poem is called Dead Fires. If this is peace, this dead and leaden thing, then better far the hateful fret with sting. Better the wound forever seeking balm than this gray calm. Is this pain's surcease? Better far the ache, the long-drawn dreary day, than night's white wake. Better the choking sigh, the sobbing breath, than passion's death. I really like that poem because, one, the emotion it so clearly displays in such a short amount of time, and two, I really think it shows the ethos of what the Harlem Renaissance was supposed to be. For this episode, a lot of my research came from Morgan Jenkins' New Yorker article on Jesse Fawcett, George Hutchinson's article on the Harlem Renaissance, Cheryl Wall's book, Women of the Harlem Renaissance, Caroline Wyden-Sylvander's book on Jesse Fawcett, and the NAACP's official website. As always, for a full list of sources and relevant images, you can visit the website www.sadgirlstudyguides.com. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. Next time in the normal length study guide, we'll be covering another female author of the Harlem Renaissance, Nella Larson, and this week on the Tangent Cast, we'll be covering Harlem mob boss Queenie Sinclair. As always, if you're interested in the Tangent Cast, you can access it by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash satgirl study guides. The Tangent Casts are available for all patrons at the $1 a month level or above. By becoming a patron, you are helping the podcast financially grow, and for that, we're so grateful for you. As always, if you want to reach out to the podcast on social media, we're on Twitter at SadGirlStudyPod and on Instagram at SadGirlStudy. The best way to help the podcast grow is to tell a friend or subscribe. We're on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, and Spotify, and please let us know how we're doing, rate or review, or else we'll be sad. Thanks!